if you've been with us for the last two months, we have been in uh, this Gospel of Mark. And it's been a joy to look at the person of Jesus, to see um, God in flesh, and the way that he interacted with people, the way that he saw the people around him, and, and really Mark sets the tone early on in these first two chapters to establish who, who Jesus is. He establishes that he's, that he's human. He establishes that in his temptation, and, and he establishes that he's God in his baptism, where the heavens open and a voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he establishes his authority several times, both over the physical world when he, when he heals, when he makes whole, and he establishes his authority over even demons and how he casts out demons. The authority of, of the master to call disciples to him and for them to stop whatever it is they're doing, leave their old ways and follow him. And so the authority of Jesus is really where Mark is going. And remember that Mark's writing this gospel to a people that need to know that. They're under a different authority. They're in Rome. The Jewish church in Rome is hearing about Jesus. And they want to hear these that who Jesus was. And so Mark is establishing for them that, hey, the Roman emperor that, you sit, that you're sitting under, he's not the ultimate authority. There is one who has ultimate authority, and it is Jesus. And so he spent two chapters doing that, and he's going to continue today. But the authority that he challenges is the religious authority today. I want us just to remember real fast the way that Jesus has seen the people that he's interacting with, because I think what we'll do is we'll tend to see the Pharisees and we'll see them as the, the bad guy in the story, which would be wrong. Like they are, they are the sinners, just like the sinners that Jesus went and ate with, the sinners and tax collectors that he ate with with Levi last week. And just appreciate Chris pointing that out. And then Jesus reminding the people that, hey, I didn't come for those that, that are well, I came for those that are sick. I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. And so that's good news for us today, because we all together, whether we, our sin looks like self-righteousness or our sin looks very blatant rebellion, it's good news for all of us. And so we've seen Jesus and the way that he interacted with all of these people in a very personal way. See, Jesus wasn't just this historical figure. He was an actual man who felt with people, who saw their hearts, who saw both their belief and their faith, and he saw their doubt and their unbelief. And so this morning, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows me better than my wife knows me. She may disagree, but he does. Right? Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And so today, he's coming with a word that we need to hear. And so I pray that God would open our hearts. Give us the gift of faith to believe that to be true. Even as we wrestle with a couple deep-seated things, if you've been in the church for a while, this morning is for you. If you've wrestled with what does religion look like and why do I do the things that I do, this message is for you because Jesus comes and he says, no, you have me. You have the God-man. You have my righteousness to walk in. You don't need to create your own. And so this morning, we get to rejoice in that together. You see, the, the whole point, Mark's drive in his whole letter is to show Jesus as a servant king who would lay down his life to ransom a people for himself. 
And so we need to remember that even as we, as we move, you know, we, we haven't gotten to kind of the, the crux of the story where, where Peter makes that proclamation that he's the, the Messiah and where Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But we know that every point in the story, that's what he's doing. And we're going we're gonna to see it at the cross. So this morning, today, we see that King Jesus will not allow his people to rest in their own self-righteousness. That's a good king that doesn't allow that. But instead, calls them to come to him and walk in his perfect, holy, gracious righteousness. Let's pray this morning. God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see the person of Jesus? God, to believe your word to be true, even as we wrestle with it, even as we doubt it, Lord, would we believe it to be true? God, we thank you for the gift and, and the ability to pray that this morning, knowing that we can pray it with confidence because that's what you desire for us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about something no one likes to talk about, fasting. Um, and then we're going to talk about Sabbath. And we're going to look at the way that both those things had become these idols to the religious people of that day. So this first section talks about John and his disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples, they practice this thing called fasting. Now, we need to learn a little bit about what fasting is because I think that probably, even if we do it, we may not understand it that well. And I'm learning about it too, so we're going to learn together. It's not me telling you what, what is right. It's us learning together. What is fasting? Well, God had established fasting in Leviticus and and what's really cool is how many references we've already made to Leviticus in, in our time in Mark. Uh, because nobody goes and reads Leviticus, but Jesus knew Leviticus. He knew the law, right? He knew that, hey, God had established law not as the end. It was a means to an end, the end of knowing God. And so Jesus knew those things. But what happens with the Pharisees is they've made the law the end. They've made it to this thing that they worship. And so Jesus references fasting. And so fasting was designed by God to happen on the Day of Atonement. On the day when the high priest would go into the temple to make atonement for the people, make a sacrifice for the people, the people would participate by fasting. They would not eat for 24 hours. And every time that they would remember, their bellies would get hungry they would remember today is the day of atonement. Today is the day where the high priest is going before God Almighty, a holy God. That song that we just sang, he's a holy God, and I need somebody to intercede for me because if I go there, I will die. But somebody is going for me. And so they would remember on the day of atonement by fasting. It was only one day. It was all that God called for. And, and to participate in what God was doing, they would fast. It's beautiful. Like, think about that. Think about, I don't have the, I'm not called as the high priest to go before God, but I can still participate in remembering what is going on, what is taking place for me on my behalf. And so the people would fast on the Day of Atonement. Well, the Pharisees had over uh, thousands of years taken that, singular fasting, and created other fastings, um, other opportunities to fast and to remember. And, and I'm not saying that they, 
were, um, that these things weren't helpful, that they weren't good, but they were not what God had said in the beginning. And so they had turned it into something more. And when they would fast, they would fast in such a way that everybody knew they were fasting. Now, originally, everybody knew that they were fasting because it only happened on one day. It happened on the Day of Atonement, and so everybody did it together. But the Pharisees would go around, and they would cover their, they would put stuff on their faces. They would put ashes on. They would have their clothes all mangled up so that you knew they were fasting. And it was, became this pious, religious thing that they did. And then they put that on everyone else. And there were actually six different categories and 39 different ways, reasons to fast, all stemming from this one thing. And so it just became this, this burden that was being put on the people rather than this opportunity to participate in what was being done on their behalf. And so we see that because they come and they say, hey, why is everybody else fasting but your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus says to them, and, and I love the way that he, Jesus speaks and he completely disarms people, but he does it in such a way that is loving and kind and even has them questioning sometimes. So they have to figure out, what did he just say? <laughs> what did, I, don't, I don't get it. And we have to go and we have to take it and we have to process it. We get to participate in it. And Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This idea of the wedding feast, and we've lost this um, in our culture. They would, they would celebrate for a long time. It wasn't just a couple hours. They would celebrate for a week, this wedding feast, and it was beautiful. And, and you couldn't ask somebody to fast during the wedding feast. That's the time of celebration. That's when they rejoice and they eat and they make merry. And they enjoy each other and the good things that God has given. Because now these two people are united together in a covenant relationship that mirrors the relationship between Israel and their God. And so Jesus is saying, you can't fast while the bridegroom is still there. You can't stop the wedding for a fast when that's the time of celebration. And he's referring to himself as the bridegroom. And we're going to find out that that's a big deal. Because again, Jesus is saying that I am God fully. No ifs, ands, or buts. I am God. Because growing up in that tradition, the Jews would understand that, Jesus, that God is the bridegroom and his people, Israel, are the bride. And so when Jesus makes this reference and declares himself as the bridegroom, he's saying that he is God. And now the people have to wrestle with that. What does that mean? And you're going to see that some of them will wrestle in ways that are, that are humble, that say, man, what is, I, want, I need to know more about what that means. And some of them will harden their hearts and they'll reject him. And they'll actually go and at the end of this passage, they begin to, they begin to plot and scheme against him. So Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. And they, we can't stop and fast when the bridegroom is there. That's the time of rejoicing. But there's going to come a time, 
And normally, at the end of that week period, everyone would leave, right? So in the, in, in the Jewish wedding, everyone would gather for that week and celebrate, and then they would leave. And the bride and the groom would stay there, and they would begin their life together. But Jesus is actually saying that something different is going to happen here. The bridegroom is going to be taken away. And so Jesus is, is uh, predicting and, and prophesying over how he will actually be taken away from them. And then that will be the time for fasting and mourning. That will be the time where we should, we should remember, where we should be sad, where there should be this contrition and repentance. But right now, you have the bridegroom. You have God himself, the presence. Right? When we think about fasting, why do we fast? We fast to experience the presence of God. And Jesus says, God is present. You don't need to fast right now. I am here and I am God. Then he makes two uh, points about how, how we can't try to fit that, that truth into our religious ideas. They're two different things. One is talking about relationship with God who is present, and one is talking about religious activities to make us self-righteous, to make ourselves righteous. Those two things cannot mesh. We can't have Jesus and. You cannot have a Jesus and gospel. Well, Jesus has saved, and now I have to do all of these things. But we do that. So before we jump on the Pharisees and say, Silly Pharisees. We've got to look at our own lives and say, what have I added to what God has done? What have I demanded of the people around me besides the righteousness that Jesus has worked on their behalf and that the Holy Spirit is, is working in their lives? Have I demanded that they um, be submissive to me? Have I demanded that they have quiet times? Have I demanded that these things in my own life? And that's, that's really where my struggle is. I am so critical of myself. And because I can't receive the grace of Jesus in my own life, often I'm critical of those around me because I'm making those same demands on them. And so can we wrestle with that? Can we say, God, would you allow me to believe that your presence is enough, that relationship with you is enough, and that your timing is perfect as you work righteousness in my life? And as you work righteousness in the life of my friends and my family and even my enemies and my neighbors, because you are God and you can do that and you have done that. And Jesus uses the two examples. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. Now, some of you are more uh, into upholstery than I am, but you would know that you cannot put a new garment that hasn't been washed and use that as a patch on an old garment that has been washed because then when you put it into the wash or you wash it you know, manually, they're going to stretch and expand at different rates. And, and it's actually just going to make a bigger tear. And the same thing with the wineskin. When you put wine into a wineskin, the, the wine would ferment and it would create a gas and that wineskin would stretch. So now if you have a stretched wineskin and then you pour new wine into it and it tries to expand, it's just going to bust and it's going to explode. And wine's going to go everywhere and it's going to be an insane mess and it's just going to destroy. But that's what we do when we try to combine these two things. When we try to combine our own self-righteousness and a righteousness that has been worked for us by God, the whole thing falls apart. 
And I say this not as one that's figured it out. I say this as one that's walking in these things. We get to walk through these things together and say, God, that seems super hard. How do we do that? We do that as a people, pointing each other to that truth. No, God has worked righteousness on your behalf. You don't need to live in sin and shame anymore. You see, there's this truth of the gospel that we have that's beautiful. That we get to point each other to daily, hourly, every minute. Like it's not, it's every minute we need to remember the truth of the gospel. The Pharisees or the religious had turned fasting into a way to prove their own piety and righteousness rather than being a reminder of their depravity and need. You see, the law was given to us to to show us our need for a Savior. It wasn't given to us so that if we perfectly executed it, we would be right with God. No one has. Paul is clear in Romans when he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. It's not everybody but the Pharisees and those that follow the law. It's all of us. We all fall short. Remember Jesus talks about this beautiful parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14, and it's about fasting. Luke 18, 9 through 14 says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It doesn't get much clearer than that. We can trust in our own righteousness or we can come as, as one who says, God, be merciful to a sinner like me. And the beauty of it is that even in our self-righteousness, we could come and say, God, I, I've trusted in my own righteousness. Will you be merciful to a sinner like me? Self-righteousness is not the not the sin that cannot be forgiven. Self-righteousness is just as forgivable as all of these other blatant rebellion sins, which is good news for you and I today. But what's required in this passage is humility. Humility is required for us to hear Jesus and to walk in the ways of Jesus and follow him. Humility is what's required for us to say, God, be merciful to a sinner like me. The purpose of the law was not to show our righteousness, but to put a mirror in front of us that would show us our need for a Savior. And this is the good news. God sent a Savior. God knew that we could not walk in righteousness according to the law. So He sent one who walked perfect righteousness on our behalf. Jesus Christ. This man that we're reading about walked in perfect righteousness. He did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. 
And then he went to the cross. And as we talked about in our prayer of confession, justice and mercy met at the cross. And the gospel was worked perfectly for those who would believe and repent. And so today, if you have walked in that, if you have repented and believed that gospel, that, that the works that Jesus did, the death that he paid, is on your behalf. That the righteousness that he walked in is also on your behalf. Then before God this morning, you stand, and when he sees you, he does not see you and your sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You are, we are for, forgiven sinners. That now he calls saints, which is just insane. I'm just blown away that God would call me a saint, that he would call me his child, that he would call me his heir because of what Christ has done. And yet, I run back to my own self-righteousness often. And just to, to close this part about fasting, Jesus in John 16, 20 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He's talking about this fasting that's going to happen because of what Jesus is going to do when he goes to the cross. We need to know that Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We keep moving through the passage, that, and we see that not only is Jesus the, the, the reason that they would fast, or that they would not fast because he is present with them, but he's also the Lord of the Sabbath. All these things, the whole law, rests under God, rests under Jesus. One Sabbath, verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and they made their way, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, this is not okay because on the Sabbath, you were not supposed to do any work. And, and so, um, the, the work that was done in this moment was the actual picking of the grain. And there's a thought that also they probably were, walked more than was allowed to travel on the Sabbath because they were walking through a field and you could only travel 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. Pretty, pretty particular. And so all of these things came down to, hey, you, the Pharisees saw it and they said, you are disobeying the law. Your, your disciples are disobeying the law. But why was the Sabbath created? Right? Was this, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? The Sabbath, when we go back all the way to the very beginning in Genesis 2, it says, verses 1 through 3 say, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You see this idea that um, the this, this Sabbath was something to be served was not true. The Sabbath was to serve man. That's what Jesus is saying. No, I've given you this gift so that you can rest, so that you can know me, so that you can walk with me, so that you have the endurance to run the race that I've called you to. 
Sabbath is for you to rest and be restored. But the Pharisees took it and made it something that you should serve rather than the good gift that serves you. We do that all the time. We make reading God's Word a duty rather than something that we get to engage in, that we are invited to participate in. We make prayer this obligation rather than this opportunity that we have. We make community this really hard, nasty thing. And I'm not saying that it's not hard. It's, it's hard to be together, right? I mean, it, we, we're all sinners, so we're all going to rub each other the wrong way as community. But we make it this, this task that we have to go to. Rather than the joy of seeing what God is doing in you as you see and enjoy what God is doing in me. And we give glory to the Father as He changes us and transforms us into His image. And so all of these things that are these beautiful and good gifts we treat, we serve them rather than being served by them. And the Pharisees are doing that with the Sabbath. They're making it something that they have to serve rather than something that would encourage them. Uh, I thought Woodhouse put it well in his commentary on 1 Samuel, which is where this story about David is taken from. Uh, David was, Jesus reminds them, and I'll read it, and he said to them, have you never read in verse 25 what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. You see, see, Jesus isn't even necessarily talking about the Sabbath there. He's talking about the ceremony and the ritual that went into who could eat the bread of the presence. And he's reminding them that, that all of these laws were laid down so that the people of God might enjoy the presence of God. The people of God might know God. And so he reminds them, don't you remember that that was a good thing? That God provided sustenance and what the people needed through his house, through his priest? Woodhouse in his commentary on 1 Samuel says, for, for the, more than that, we may sense that God's law is intended to serve, not hinder the coming of God's kingdom. It is possible, as the Pharisees of Jesus' day would prove again, to oppose God's king in the name of obedience to God's law. They're missing out. They're talking about God's law and they're missing God himself. They're serving this thing that, that they probably helped to create. And so there's some ownership in it. We do the same thing. And yet Jesus is coming and he's saying, hey, if you try to do that, it will, it will be destroyed. If you try to put new wine, skin, new wine in an old wineskin, the whole thing's going to blow up. You need to see that I am God. And I've come and I have a new way. I have a, a righteous way that you can walk in. But it's not new in, in the sense that the old plan failed and the new plan is going to succeed. The whole time... The law was designed so that they would know God. And Jesus is saying, now you know me because I'm here and I'm present. See me. Walk with me. Come follow me. So the invitation is there. 
The last bit is, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was God's day. So even as Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, again, he's declaring clearly to the people, he is God. If he's Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is, is God's day, then he is God. And you, we see that that's two blatant confessions that he is God, and in that time, that meant that that was heretic. Right? That was a heresy. That was something that you would be stoned for. The Pharisees, they're not quite as bold as that. So they're going to work. They're going to connive. And again, the Pharisees, they're, they're, not, they're no different from us. They're a self-righteous people. And so we have to see ourselves in them. We can't say, oh, they're the bad guy. Because at the cross and the Passion Week, Everybody cheered when Jesus came in, but at the cross, no one was cheering. They were all cheering, crucify him. They were all yelling, crucify him. The disciples, those that were closest to him, left him. That's all of us. We are those people. And yet, God in his grace and kindness saved us, called us to himself, and continues to be patient with us. He's so good. The last passage and again he entered the synagogue and the man was there with a withered hand and Jesus comes and he sees him now that withered hand he's not going to die that day because of the withered hand so the law of the sabbath was you could not practice um, healing you couldn't practice any kind of work or labor unless it was life endangering and this man with a withered hand had had a withered hand for we, we imagine for a while because it probably didn't just wither overnight. So this could have waited till the next day, and yet Jesus is making a point here. And I think it's interesting that every other time he talks to them after the fact, he talks to the, addresses the Pharisees after the fact, but in this moment he comes to them and he says, ahead of time, is it, in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He's putting it right in front of them. Are you seeing that I have come to restore and to heal and to make whole? And he's asking them and they say nothing. Like if you know God, you know that God is a God of restoration, that God is a good God, that he would want to heal and he would want to restore. And these people claim to know him and yet they're silent and it grieves Jesus. It says, but they were silent and he looks around at them with anger in verse 5, grieved at their hardness of heart. Two beautiful things there. He's angry. He's furious. Some, some commentators say that the more accurate translation is not anger, it's fury. He's indignant. He can't believe that they would not know God enough to be able to say, no, God wants to do good. But in the same moment that he's angry, he's grieved because he hurts with those. He weeps for the Pharisee that in the midst of his inability to see God, God himself grieves and is, is sorrowful. 
That's good news for us because there are so many times where we should see God, where we have every opportunity given to us and we miss Him. And God grieves. And just the compassion of Jesus, the the man, the humanity of Him, is that He's God and He demands righteousness, but He's also God and He sees and He grieves. We've seen it several times in His interaction with the people. And so even as we see these the religious, self-righteous people, God is grieved. And he longs for them to know his righteousness, to walk in his righteousness. It says he was grieved at their hardness of heart. These are men that are plotting against him, right? Because it says in verse 2 that they watch Jesus. So they're, they're actively looking for a reason to accuse and condemn him. And yet he's still grieved that their hearts are hard. But to the man with the withered hand, he says, stretch out your hand. And he heals him. And he restores him. And he makes him whole. That's good news for us today because we all are coming to Jesus for something. And he can meet every need that we have, including the cleansing of our own self-righteousness, including the restoration of our bodies, including... The, the hope of, of being um, transformed into his image, including the wrestling with sin, where we would say, God, would you take this from me because I can't take it from myself. God is good, and he meets us in our place of need. But then we, we're left with this. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is going to lead down this path of um, the the religious people of the day, the self-righteous people of the day, just cannot believe that there's a righteousness available to them outside of what they have. And so their hearts are hardened, and they're going to crucify this God, this God-man. We're going to see that play out. But this morning, I just want us to to look at some of the application points real fast, the idea that um, this sounds like confrontation, right? It sounds like Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, and it sounds like it because he is. But even in that confrontation, there's amazing grace. God would not let them continue to believe that they could earn a righteousness in themselves. And so he confronts them because of grace, and he shows them that there is a righteousness that is not theirs that is available to them through faith and belief in Jesus, the God-man. This is the kindness of God, that he would explode and rip up our wrong religion, the religion of the Pharisees and our religion. It's the same kindness of God that he does not silently let us be led astray, but confronts us and calls us to true worship. You see, God never takes away one thing without giving us this other thing, I think. He, he never takes from us what we're clinging to without giving us Himself, which is way better, which only is the only thing that satisfies. And so God calls them to leave this dead self-righteousness and walk in life in His righteousness. He calls them to true and authentic relationship with the King. Don't miss the celebration. 
Don't miss the bridegroom that is present with you because you're fasting and you're mourning. Experience him. Experience relationship with this king. He invites us to the wedding feast. He invites us to joy, to passion, to celebration. Remember, we talked before in our study in Colossians, and we said we want to hold this with us, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, as we're walking through Mark and we're seeing Jesus, because we have this identity in Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We get so caught up, and what does that look like for me today, and, and how should I figure this out, and what's right living And the reality is that God is calling us to himself. It might be a little messier than my checklist. It might be a little more difficult. It might require repentance. It might require waiting on the Lord. Different different things, but we want to make it into this tight, neat, little religious thing. And he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's the good news. I have a righteousness that is in Christ. Before we condemn the Pharisees or others for not embracing the bridegroom, we have to remember that, that, that we ourselves have this gift of the presence of God. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us. So while we may not be able to go and sit at the table with Jesus and celebrate with Him, we have God Himself, the Spirit of Christ, dwelling inside of us, and we neglect it all the time. We ignore it. We don't embrace all of the good things that God has given us as the people of God. And so we can sit here and we can say, silly Pharisees, but we can say the same thing about ourselves. But we have this gift. The gift of God himself. We have the gift of knowing the full story that Christ went to the cross, that he died on our behalf, that he rose again, that he defeated sin and death, that we no longer have to search for a righteousness that's our own, but we have one in Jesus. And so this morning we celebrate that. We remember that. And that should drive us to proclaim it to those around us. It should drive us to proclaim it to our own hearts first thing in the morning, to our children, to our families, to our households, to our neighbors, our schoolmates, those that work with us. You don't have to do that self-righteousness anymore. I see what you're trying to do there, and there's a righteousness that has been purchased for you in Christ. And you can rest. And so when he talks about Sabbath, when he talks about rest, there's a rest in Jesus that meets every need that we have. We can truly rest in his righteousness. Right now, today, we don't have to wait until glory, we can rest in him today. So I pray that as Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, that we would believe that this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you're good. So good. And I know I went long this morning, and yet, God, I just thank you for opening our eyes, for allowing us to remember the good news that Jesus has come and that he confronts us in our religious ways. And he offers himself. He says, I have something better, something that satisfies more. Will you believe it to be true and will you rest in it? God, will you do that for us, your people today? Change our hearts. May we rest in you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.